If you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The um, passage will be on the overhead, but, you know, it's never, never a bad thing to open up your Bible and get your hands on a little bit. Uh, I want to thank you guys again for, for being here this morning. Uh, our pastor, Ryan, is still on sabbatical, uh, so I'll be preaching this week and then next week and then leading worship, and we'll be... Uh, looking at uh, the same subject both weeks, the, the subject of Scripture. And uh, we're going to do that because this is what we're going to be studying at RUF this semester. Uh, well, not Scripture the whole semester, but uh, what we're going to study is what I'm going to call We Believe. It's going to be the title of our series. And it's going to be a, a study of the historic Christian doctrines, the things that we believe, the things that, that shape us, that shape the world around us, and hopefully this will be both uh, edifying for our Christian students who'll be, who will learn more about what we believe and they'll be equipped and discipled and trained and strengthened in their faith. And then hopefully it will be also evangelistic for non-Christian students who come. And hopefully it will challenge them to think about what they believe and why they believe it and, and see how that's different than Christianity and how I believe that Christianity offers them something more beautiful and more believable than what they have. Um, so, uh, let me start sort of with this introduction. Um, one of the reasons why I picked this sort of sermon series is that I believe that beliefs are powerful. What we believe is really powerful. And there was a study I read a few years ago that reminded me of this. Uh, the study was called Mind Over Milkshake. At least the article I read about was called Mind Over Milkshake. That was clever. Uh, but the study was about a researcher who wanted to test the effects of marketing uh, food labels on the body. So what she did was she made a batch of uh, vanilla milkshake. And it was all one batch. She took that batch and she split it into two separate batches. And on those two separate batches, she put two different labels. On one label, she called it Scentsy Shake. And she advertised that it was uh, zero fat, zero sugar, is 140 calories. On the other batch, she called it indulgent, and she said that it had 600 calories. It was filled with fat and sugar and everything that tastes good and fills you up, makes you feel really filling. When in reality, the vanilla milkshake all had 300 calories. And so what they did is they gave this, they gave both batches to different groups of people, and they tested their ghrelin hormone before and after drinking the shakes. Now, the ghrelin hormone is what they call the hunger hormone. It's the hormone that your body secretes when it, to tell you that you're hungry. Okay? That, that hormone goes out, it gives you this sense of hungriness and actually slows your metabolism until you get more food in your body. So they tested the ghrelin in these subjects and they showed that those people who drank the indulgent milkshake their ghrelin levels dropped three times more than the people who drank the other milkshakes. Same milkshake, but because they believed they were drinking a drink that would fill them up, their body produced the chemical hormones that would make them feel full. Right? So what does that mean? Other than, you know, you, you need to be careful about your food labels. Right? Check them. Verify them. That means that our beliefs are powerful. 
and the knowledge that we use to inform those beliefs are powerful as well. What we know and what we believe are two very powerful things. Um, It's vital that we think about what we know as Christians. That we take that information in, that we believe it. It affects our minds, our bodies, and our souls. So hopefully, this morning, as we look at Luke 1, 1 through 4, that we will learn to believe that the Bible is trustworthy. That's what we're going to talk about. So please read this passage along with me. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for leaving this word for us. We need to hear from you. We hear a thousand different voices every day that make promises and claims that tug on our hearts and uh, cloud our minds. Um, All these voices bring confusion and chaos to our lives. Um, Some of them are good, some of them are not. Father, and what we need this morning is to hear from you. We pray that you would speak. Your servants are listening. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I have a confession to make. I hear voices. You guys hear voices? We all actually hear voices. Right, not like a crazy person. Right, we're not. That doesn't mean we're all crazy. It means we're actually we're all human. Right, to be human is to communicate. It's to have people talking to you, giving you information, and you interacting with that information. Right, we hear voices all the time from our our family, our friends, our pastors, mentors, professors, employers, advertisements, the media. We hear our own voices. We're surrounded by voices giving us information, and that information shapes the way that we think and act. But all voices are not equal, are they? We don't give them all equal weight. Some voices have more weight than others in our lives. So, which voice that you hear do you trust? Which voice for you is the loudest voice? Which voice is the voice that you lean on in good times and bad times? Um, Is it the voice of a teacher that was really encouraging to you in your second grade classroom? Is it the voice of a coach who was a real father figure to you? Is it the voice of a parent that you trusted and was uh, very close and dear to you? Is it the voice of a friend that you call at night when you need advice? Is it the voice of a pastor Is it the voice of a book or a podcast that you really enjoy uh, reading or listening to? I mean, maybe some people have the voice of Garrison Keillor in their minds telling them stories, right? What voice do you hear? As Christians, I think we hope that somewhere in the midst of those voices that we hear God's voice loud and clear. 
And not only do we hear it, but we actually trust it and we obey it. But part of the challenge of being a Christian and living in this world is that while we hear God's voice and we want to listen and obey it, we also hear all of these other voices and we begin to experience tension and doubt, confusion, whenever those voices and God's voice contradict each other. Right? And we find ourselves asking, whose voice can I trust? Whose word do I trust? Do I trust God's or do I trust my professor's? Do I trust God's or do I trust my spouse's? Do I trust God's or do I trust my own? Right. Uh, this morning... As we look at this passage, the introduction to the book of Luke, I hope you will see that God's voice is a voice that you can trust. If you can find his voice in his word, that he will speak to you in a reliable, clear, consistent way, and that his voice will be the loudest voice in your life. So we're going to look at that this morning, uh, very simply just by looking here at the introduction. Um, we're going to look at uh, Luke 1, 1 through 4. This is the introduction to the gospel of Luke. I'm not sure that I've ever preached an introduction to a book before, but here, this is the one that, that we're going to preach this morning. Um, it is an introduction that, you know, to us uh, might seem curious, but to the audience that Luke was writing to, this would be very common. It was very common in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture in the first century to uh, have this type of introduction at the beginning of your work, right? If this lets everybody know what they're reading. This lets them know that they're reading history, okay? If we opened a book today and the book said, once upon a time, what would we be reading? A fairy tale. We would know instinctively that that was a fairy tale, right? If you, uh, you know, read a blog post in the Grace Facebook group, that said on Sunday, Shane Hatfield preached Luke 1, 1 through 4, for all 50 members of the congregation that were there. What would you think? You would think, I'm reading history. Like, I'm reading a historical eyewitness account of what took place at Grace in church on Sunday. Right? So in that same way, first century Jews that were uh, reading the book of Luke would have looked at, would have looked at this and said, this is history. This is a real account of what Luke and others knew about the personal work of Jesus. Now, the introduction doesn't tell us that Luke is the author, but taking biblical evidence and church history and putting those two things together, uh, we come with a very high degree of, of probability that, that Luke, who was the physician that traveled with the Apostle Paul, is the one that, who wrote this gospel um, and also probably wrote Acts. Okay, so it's an introduction. So like any good introduction, Luke gives us important information that we need to know. And the first thing he tells us is what he wrote. Look at verse 3. He says, it, good, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Right? So he's telling this man named Theophilus, that this is an orderly account, and we know from looking at the rest of the book, of the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? It's orderly in the sense that it is generally chronological, 
Uh, most scholars would say that Luke does some thematic arrangements there because he wants to highlight a few things that are important for Theophilus to know. But, but in general, he's saying he, he's gathered the data, he's collected the data, he's collected stories, probably oral stories and written stories, maybe even from the Gospel of Mark. He's interviewed people, he's, he's gathered all this information, he's put it together to create an orderly account of the person and work of Jesus. Um, Where did he get his information? We'll look at verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Okay? So he's saying there were people who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that gave us this tradition, that gave us this history, this story. Okay? That was probably the apostles. Right? The apostles and Paul would have been a great position to get, they, they walked with Jesus, they lived with Jesus, they heard his teaching, they, they gathered all those stories, they collected them, they recited them, and then they passed them on to others. And Luke, having traveled with Paul, would have been in a great position to gather all those stories, to collect them, and to put them in an, in an accurate, orderly way so that somebody else could read them. So what do we have here? We have a historical account that Luke wrote that he gathered together from eyewitnesses. It's about the personal work of Jesus. The second thing that he tells us is why he wrote it. Okay, look at verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The you being Theophilus. So Luke wrote this so that Theophilus would be reassured the things he had already been taught about the person and work of Jesus. Now, we don't know that much about Theophilus. We know that his name is Greek, and that it means lover of God. He was probably a Gentile and not a Jew. He was probably a new believer, or he was close to being a believer. Uh, He had some information about Jesus already, but Luke wants to make sure that Theophilus knows it with certainty. Uh, And I think this word certainty is interesting here. Um, In the Greek, this word means that it's based on evidence, that this account is firm, that it's doubtless, that it's reliable, right? In other words, Luke is wanting to say, I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that all the things that you've been taught about the person and work of Jesus are true and trustworthy, So this means, this introduction is telling us that Luke's account, the account in the rest of this uh, book that we would read, that we're going to study at RUF this semester, is not a myth. It's not a fictional story. It's not something that Luke made up. It is an eyewitness account of the person and work of Jesus Christ, written to strengthen Christians. Right? And so, you know, I mean, I think... Um, all of us might be a little bit skeptical and, and say, well, okay, how do we know that this is reliable account? How do we know that it's accurate? Right. Well, modern archaeologists have done discoveries that have validated Luke's account in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. Right. All the archaeological evidence we have shows that what Luke has recorded, that what he's put down, the names, the places, the kings, all that sort of stuff is reliable. Uh, in fact, one of my seminary professors said that 
that the reason why most people reject the book of Acts is not because it's an unreliable account and Luke got all these things wrong. It's because they believe that the, the Paul in Acts couldn't be the same Paul that wrote Galatians and the other New Testament letters. The, his, the historicity that Luke has written is good and reliable and accurate. Um, so certain that some scholars call Luke a first-rate historian, right? Um, this account is so certain that the early church recognized that it wasn't merely the words of Luke, that this book was the divinely inspired word of God, that, that the book of Luke and the other 65 books that we have in our Bible weren't just written by men, but they were written by God working through men. Uh, the Bible describes its origin this way, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is, God, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1, 19-21 says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This account is true, it's reliable, it's accurate. Not just because Luke gathered it from eyewitnesses, but because God himself inspired it and spoke through Luke. Uh, throughout church history, Christians have believed that the Bible is the inspired word of God. A first, history, first century Christian named Clement of Rome said, Look carefully into the scriptures, which are the truest utterances of the Holy Spirit. In the 2nd or 3rd century, Irenaeus said, The scriptures are indeed perfect, since they are written by the Spirit of God. Our own confession of faith says this, and this is long. I'm going to try to read it slow. This is really beautiful language, the way that it describes the scriptures. The heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby the Bible doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. It's beautiful. It's consistent. It's powerful because it's written by God. Uh, Modernly, theologians such as B.B. Warfield and John MacArthur, and we could go on and on, all agree that God worked through human authors to divinely inspire the scriptures. So that's the inspiration. And from inspiration of the scriptures, because they're the very word of God, then we learn that we can trust him. Since the scripture is the very word of God, and the word of God is upright and all of its works are done in faithfulness, as Psalm 33, 4 says, we believe the word of God is reliable and trustworthy. Now, the fancy terms for those words are inerrancy and infallibility, right? But they just, what they basically mean is that in all it reports and all it teaches is the Bible is without error. It's accurate and it's trustworthy, okay? Now, I know that everything I just said is very pregnant, and there's been a lot of ink spilled about the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of the scriptures. And 
I could talk forever about that, but I'm not going to. <laughs> we could get down deep into the weeds of all these things. I would love to talk with you more about it. Um, I'm sure Thomas wouldn't mind talking with more of you about it. Eddie, I know this is one of his hobby horses is the word of God, so I'm sure he would, he would love to talk to you about it. Um, but, so we're not going to go get down into the weeds of all those things, uh, but I do want to say this, okay? Um, I know it's hard to believe that this document that's thousands and thousands of years old could be true and 100% accurate. But after reading the Bible and studying and praying, I really do think it's true. I really do think this whole thing is reliable and accurate. And I think what Luke puts in here about his account coming from eyewitnesses really strengthens this idea. Not just Luke's, but the whole New Testament um, really uh, communicates that it's an eyewitness account of the personal work of Jesus. And Paul says that over 500 people saw Jesus resurrected. And those 500 people could all tell you that they saw that Jesus was dead and that they saw him alive. Now, look at it this way, right? If somebody came to you and said, hey, I heard that Shane preached for an hour on Sunday and he raised somebody from the dead. What would you all say? No, it's not going to happen. Okay? You would say no. Why? Because I was there. And there were 50 other people that were there. Right? You would trust an eyewitness account. I think we can trust this. Now, you may not like what it says. Maybe there's that skeptic in you that says, okay, maybe this is true, but I don't like what it says. I can live with it. I mean, I think that's a, that's a reasonable position. Okay? I don't like everything it says sometimes. I was telling Sherry this morning, there's some things about this that are, that are really hard for me. Right? But I, I, think it's, um, I think it's hard to argue that it's untrue and it's inaccurate. That's just my stance. So I really, I really want to spend the rest of our time is more talking about the application of this point, right? How do we apply this to our lives, this idea that the word of God is true? The gospel of Luke was written for God lovers like Theophilus and you and I so that we might know for certain what we've been taught, so that God's voice would be the voice that we trust above all others, so this would be the voice that we hear in good times and bad times. So I want to make a few application points. The first one is this. Since the Bible is the voice of God, then we need to commit ourselves to reading it and studying it. Like it it's the word of God. It's the word of the creator of the heavens and the earth. It's the word of your heavenly father who wants to draw near to you and give you everything that you need for life and godliness, right? Let's draw near to him. Let's learn it. Let's study it. Let's read it. I know it's messy. I know it's hard. I know it's a big, intimidating book. But through the use of the Holy Spirit, through reading it, through the pastors and teachers and elders that we have here, we can read this book. We can learn it. We can understand it. We can apply it to our lives. And we can hear God's voice. Uh, At the church I worked at in Tulsa, we ministered to a man for a while named Brian. Brian was convicted of a violent crime when he was a teenager. He got put into prison for decades. While he was in prison, he joined a hate group. 
and he accumulated all the tattoos to prove that he was not a gentle person. He was big and scary. Well, eventually, at some point while he was in prison, he began reading the Bible, and simply from reading the Bible, he got converted and became a Christian. Eventually, he was paroled. He got out. He went to a halfway house. Somebody from our church went and met him in the halfway house and got to know him. They invited him to church. He came. He said, I loved it. And our pastor said, well, what do you love about it? He said, well, whenever all the false prophets came to the halfway house to talk to me, I never heard the voice of my shepherd. And when I'm here, I hear the voice of my shepherd. Do you know the voice of your shepherd? You can by reading and studying his word. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is this. Since the Bible is the voice of God, we can trust it in all circumstances, in everything. We can come to it in every situation. As I read earlier, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. The confession says that everything that we need for life and godliness is either expressly put down in Scripture or we can deduce it from the Scriptures. Right? Now look at it this way. If God is the author of life, then that makes him the authority of life. And if you wanted to know something about how to live life well, then who would you go to? You would go to the author. Right? If we wanted to know about Harry Potter, right, Tucker, you want to know everything there is to know about Harry Potter, who would you go to? You'd go to J.K. Rowling. Why? Because J.K. Rowling is the author, the authority of Harry Potter. If you wanted to know everything there is to know about this life, then where would you go to? You would go to the author of life, the God himself who wrote this Bible and who speaks to us through it. So I ask you this question. Where do you need to hear the voice of God today? Where do you need to trust it and apply it? Um, I heard it recently that, that a young Christian was struggling to believe that the stories in the Bible were true. I get that. There's a lot of hard stories to believe in the Bible. I would say this to that young person. If there's an all-powerful, all-knowing God that created all this, and that God put on flesh and became a human, don't you think he would do some pretty extraordinary things in pretty natural ways? I think he would. And far from being evidence to doubt him, that might be more evidence to believe that he's real and that Jesus is really who he said he was. If you're struggling to believe, you come here. If you're struggling with, with shame and guilt, where do you go? What voice do you listen to? You come here. As Eddie said earlier, that we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's here that we find that our guilt and shame can be taken away. When we hear the voice of shame about our body and our image, where do we go to deal with that? We come to the scriptures. One of my friends once told me that her eating disorder began when she looked in the mirror and she heard a voice say to her, you could be skinny if you want to be. That's not the voice of your heavenly father. The voice of your heavenly father says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you're a beloved child of God. And that beauty is deceitful and charm is in vain, 
but, one, but a woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. God's voice is a voice that we can hear when we desperately need to hear the truth. It's a voice we can trust when we need to hear the truth. Uh, one of my friends, his parents got divorced when he was older. So when he was in his mid-20s, his parents got divorced. So he lived this whole life with his family together. And then all of a sudden in his mid-20s, his parents get divorced. And as he was wrestling with that, he realized that there was lots of confusion and hurt and anguish. He was really confused about what was real in his family and in his upbringing. And he said one night he was lying in bed and he found himself crying, I just need something real. And it was in that moment when he looked to the word of God and drew near to it and found truth in it. Just like John 17, 7 says, says the word of God is truth. That's where he found truth. Um, the Bible is the, the voice you can trust when you don't know how you're going to provide for your family. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He says, young lions may suffer want, but those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. It's the voice you can trust when you swore that you would never commit a sin again, and then you did it. It's the voice you can trust when everything in life seems to be going really, really well and you're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop and things to go badly. That's, that's how I am. Anybody else like that? Like everything is going so good and you're just like, okay, at some point it's going to fall apart. And then God says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more do I know how to give good gifts to my children? Even if everything falls apart, he's going to give you good gifts because he's a good father. It's the voice that you can trust in every situation in life because it's the voice that Jesus trusted in every situation. In his temptation, Jesus was quoting scripture. In his preaching and teaching, he was quoting scripture. He was even quoting scripture on the cross as he was dying. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. And to that same God, Luke records him saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. If Jesus can trust God with his life, if he can trust the scriptures with his life, then we can too. We believe that the Bible is trustworthy because the God who wrote it is trustworthy. And that we can come to him in any and every situation and hear his voice, apply it to our lives, and receive the comfort from knowing that our Heavenly Father loves us and forgives us in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't stay dead on the cross. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He still sits at the right hand of God. And through the Holy Spirit, he mediates between us and our Heavenly Father. You have access to God right now. You have access through his word and through his spirit to hear him, to talk to him, to communicate with him, to be with him. Listen to him. Let that voice be the loudest voice in your life. Let that voice be the voice that you hear loudly and clearly above all other voices. Trust that voice. I'm going to close by praying a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer because I think it's a beautiful summary of 
of this sermon and this passage and all that Luke was trying to communicate. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Almighty God, who called Luke the physician, whose praise is in the gospel to be an evangelist and physician of the soul, may it please thee that by thy wholesome medicines of the doctrine delivered by him, all the diseases of our souls may be healed through the merits of thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.